Hi guys, welcome to Ditch the Couch with Michelle and Katie. We're here to talk honestly about all things life, motherhood, babies, and mental health. Michelle and I have been best friends for 10 years and have a habit of being way too direct and honest. We've been through life's ups and downs together and are now married to two wonderful men and have beautiful baby girls. While navigating this new chapter of pregnancy and motherhood, we found the things we were seeing in mom groups and on the internet weren't always realistic or relatable to what we have experienced. So we decided to take our own professional and personal backgrounds and compile them together to create a podcast where we hope to inspire, support, and of course laugh with other women who want a realistic and honest approach to life and mental health. Thank you so much for listening. We're so grateful to have you here. Let's get started. We are back. And today we are going to talk about something that I think a lot of people experience and not uh, that many people talk about, especially the details. People hear the words postpartum anxiety and postpartum depression and know that other people have experienced it, but don't necessarily know the details. And I think it's really important to know from other women what the details specifically are of that so that... Maybe if your story wasn't exactly the same, maybe you had similar um, kind of thoughts or similar ideas relating to what the uh, specifics were. And then we're going to talk a little bit, and that's kind of been Katie's experience. And then we're going to talk a little bit about my experience um, with not experiencing postpartum depression or anxiety. So we will just go ahead right into it and kind of get started uh, with Katie. And she's going to tell you a little bit about her pregnancy journey. Hey guys. So I think hindsight's 2020 and looking back now on my actual pregnancy, I see that I, I kind of was set up essentially for postpartum anxiety and depression. Maybe I'm making that up in my head. I'm not a doctor. I don't know, but I, it, when I got pregnant about five weeks in, I was diagnosed with hyperemesis gravidarum, which is like an extreme form of morning sickness. I don't even know if it's classified as morning sickness. It's just extreme nausea and vomiting. I was hospitalized, I think four times throughout. I had home health care. I had a pick line in my arm. I had IV fluids every day. I was injecting Zofran. It was a really interesting time. I'm so grateful that I was able to get pregnant. I'm so grateful that I have a daughter. I'm not discounting any of that, but it was really interesting to go through that because it was incredibly traumatic and I was very disconnected to the fact that I was even pregnant. It was just surviving day to day. And it it was it's really strange to look back on it because your belly's growing and you're looking at these ultrasounds, but you're miserable and you're vomiting uncontrollably and you can't eat anything. And I couldn't watch TV because it would make me vomit. And talking with my husband recently, I was reflecting on the fact that I was so disconnected. I had this gut instinct that I didn't express for some reason that I just was never going to give birth. I don't know if I, if I was in denial of the fact that I actually had to get this child out of me somehow or what my thought process was, but I just knew deep down I was never going to give birth. We did the birthing classes, we did all these things, and and I was telling my friends and my sisters-in-law and things like that, I'd love to try to go natural. Like, I think I have a pretty high pain tolerance. Probably don't, but I'm just going to give it a shot. <laughs> I don't know why I ever said those words. Like, I truly, in my gut, was like, that's never happening to me. I'm never giving birth. I'm never going to experience a contraction. In my soul, I just knew it. And of course, Um, I went in on my due date or on Maggie's due date and she went from head down. She flipped breach on her due date. We watched the morning prior an hour prior to our appointment. We watched her flip in my stomach. So it, we went in and my doctor, my wonderful doctor who truly saved my life, um, this pregnancy just knew I had been so depressed and miserable he asked, do you want a C-section tomorrow? And thank God he did because it took the decision. I mean, I obviously had a decision. He gave me all sorts of options about flipping her and things like that. But um, I had hired this man because I trusted his opinion and he had guided me for 40 weeks wonderfully and kept me alive and comfortable. And I trusted when he said, do you want a C-section tomorrow? Yes, I did. Cause he was going to get me the relief that I needed, but I was still so disconnected from everything that was happening And looking back, I don't know what I was thinking, but I don't think I thought I was coming home with a baby the next day. I really didn't. Like it was just 
one foot in front of the next, the next right step and go to the hospital, get cut open, which was a whole nother ordeal with my nurse <laughs> trying to convince me that a C-section was a bad idea, even though she was the C-section nurse. Um, but I had a C-section, best decision of my life, my wonderful doctor. And this little nugget was given to me. And we didn't know the sex, which was really special. Um, so it was really exciting to have a girl because I really wanted a girl. Either I would have loved. But I didn't connect and I didn't bond with her. And I, I had no framework to hang it on because I'd never experienced it before. But I, I just completely disconnected. I knew to care for her and to feed her and to do all those things. But I just didn't really accept it or accept her. And I remember driving home some days because I would go, my sister-in-law is a personal trainer at a gym. And I would go down there and I would, after my eight weeks or whatever, and I was clear to work out, I would go and I would stretch and I would hang out. And I would be driving home and I would fantasize about what would it be like if she wasn't here anymore? Not that I ever wanted her to leave or not be with us or anything, but just what would it be like if I had the freedom to go close my eyes and go to sleep? And I, obviously that's postpartum depression and my anxiety was out of control and I would wake up in the middle of the night and panic that she wasn't breathing, which I think is a little bit more normal, but still I was jolting out of bed, grabbing her out of the bassinet and screaming, breathe. And I didn't share it with a doctor. And my doctor had told my husband at my two-week postpartum or whenever it was, um, these are the signs of postpartum depression and it's your responsibility. You're her partner. And if you see the signs, you need to call me. Obviously, if she sees the signs, she needs to. But most likely, you're going to see them and you need to call me. And we would talk pretty openly about it. And I would say, no, I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm doing okay. I think this is normal. And looking back, I was so depressed and I didn't bond with her until she was three or four months because I didn't even accept that she was real, if that makes sense. I don't know if that's normal, maybe. I don't know what is normal, but I knew I just, I just kept her alive and it kept me alive. And that was all I can do. Are you feeling that way right now? You're just in it. Well, that's that's a yeah I mean I think it's hard like in the moment especially like with our backgrounds to like kind of just like when we go into survival mode it's kind of like we disconnect and we just keep going and we just keep going and we just keep going until we hit a wall and turn around and look back at the last 10 months nine months one year and think like I was not okay yeah um and I think like, that's one thing to do when it's just you on your own, but when you have a baby or you're pregnant, like you can't just like stop, take a time out, reflect, think if you want to do something different because you, you can't turn back. So, um, I, maybe that, you know, could be part of like why it's just, it was so hard to, um, know what was going on while it was going on. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if that was your. Yeah, I I couldn't experience. I couldn't accept it. It's really weird to think about, and it's interesting to see how the anxiety has morphed. I think the postpartum depression has lifted. I'm not even quite sure when that lifted, but the postpartum anxiety has really morphed into more of like a generalized anxiety around just Maggie and then me. And what if I die? And it's really interesting. And sometimes I think about it when we're doing things or I'm reading a book to her and I'll say like in my brain, should I record this so that if I ever am gone, Alex can show her me reading her this book? Or should I record my the nighttime song we sing to her every night so she has that? It's really weird. And I don't know if that's morbid or a premonition or something like my, I'm never giving birth premonition, which is freaky, mm. <laughs> but it's, and I'm kind of like obsessed with that immortalizing things for her future. 
which is really odd. And I, and I'm very fearful of different things like choking and well, are you watching? Like, what if she grabs something that's too small and she's going to choke and keep an eye out and an obsession over those types of things when the reality is the people who care for her care about her and they are going to be appropriately aware and safe. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, when we were in the hospital, I I may, I I was, I mean, we're obviously exhausted and um, I also had a C-section. So I also was extremely tired and um, I made my, I tried to make my husband stay up. I wanted us to take turns at night making sure she was breathing. So I stayed up with her to like two and then from like two to four because the nurse would come in at four and do their nurse thing um and i swear to god i went to sleep at two and i woke up at like 2 15 i heard him snoring and i was livid mm-hmm. and i'm like what if something happened and um we actually bought one of those um what do you call it little I'll monitors let- to put on her yes by the way, you should, everyone should definitely have one of those if they can afford it. And if not, you should just buy one used or like start saving for it now because we didn't have that in the hospital. And those were like the longest nights, not only that, but because I was breastfeeding and she was like cluster feeding all night. But, um, I brought, I made him bring the outlet to the hospital, but like, there's no wifi there. So we couldn't hook it up. And anyway, Oh, you have to have but, wifi for it to work. Yes. Oh, so like you can't use it in the car. Oh, I thought it was like a Bluetooth or something. Okay. Interesting. Well, I mean, that's maybe, but I don't think so. So if you were to have another child, would you like use your Wi-Fi hotspot on your phone at the hospital and bring it? (laughs) Or would you stay up all night at the hospital again? It's weird. Like I, I think every baby's different, but I feel like more confident that she's not going to stop breathing in the middle of the night. Like the more things go on, although we did have a scare the other day, but anyway, um, I think like for postpartum anxiety, like that would, that's like a helpful tool, but, um, yeah, I was telling Katie earlier that I didn't experience any, uh, postpartum anxiety or depression and I didn't, um, have any of that during my pregnancy, but I have a very long history of pretty severe depression and, um, more so depression, some anxiety. And so I didn't know what to expect when I first got pregnant. And actually I was on, um, medication, mental health medication, and I found out I was pregnant and I immediately went to my doctor and said, I need to get off these medications. And actually there are different classes for psychiatric medication. I think there are for all medications, but for the ones I was on, I was on a class A and a class C. And I think they go to like C or D and then there's like an X and X is like really advised against. And one of them was a class C, which is like, if the, if the benefits outweigh the risks, you should continue to use, but we actually don't know what these medications do long-term, which was like really scary to me. So I like took a flyer. I said, let me go off. And then if I get depressed, I will go back on, even though I don't want to, but just from like what I do for work, I really truly believe at the end of the day, like that a happy mother, whether it's a happy pregnant mother or a happy mother, to a baby or a child is way more important than a depressed um, mother. So at any cost, I was trying to keep my mental health stable. And when I went off the medication, I actually like felt better than I had felt probably in my entire life. I felt the most stable mentally while I was pregnant. And there's like a joke that goes around that says like the more stable you are when you're pregnant, like the crazier you are on like a daily basis. I don't know if that's true. I love that. (laughs) But I'm pretty crazy on a regular basis. So actually like that might be true. Um, But then I kind of thought to myself, like, I wonder if it's like the 17 years of birth control that makes me like slightly more insane than the average person. But anyway, that's a separate issue. What is interesting though, is like, because I am a mental health professional, because you, my best friend experienced the postpartum anxiety and depression, 
And because people are like, more people need to talk about this. And like, I went to a support group and people were sharing, like, I hate being pregnant. And like, I despise people that say they love being pregnant. And like, how could they say that? And I actually don't think that's the right way to go either. And I think, so like, it's hard for me not to, like, I don't want to feel shameful that like, I love being pregnant and I loved, um, the way that I gave birth through C-section and I love, um, my newborn and I'm not mad about it. Like I shouldn't feel bad for that, but like people, um, don't realize by like saying that, um, like it's okay if you hate being pregnant, but it's not okay to be like, I don't understand people that love being pregnant. Cause then that makes us feel shameful. And like, nobody is wrong. Like there's no right or wrong way. Yeah. If you hate being pregnant and you encounter someone that loves being pregnant, the, I think polite response would be, that's wonderful that you love it. That's, that's great for you. And it shouldn't be shame, like shame-based pointed in either direction of how dare you feel opposite of me. However you experience it for you is the right way to experience it for you. And that's okay. Right. No one else's experience is superior or what's the opposite of superior? <laughs> less, less than than yours. It's everybody's going to do things differently. I wonder also, I yeah. forgot about this earlier, but I was not able to breastfeed. My body just for some reason does not produce milk. No idea why. Um, and I was pretty dead set in my brain. Like I'm going to breastfeed. And I don't know where I got that from. I was formula fed. My husband is formula fed or was not is. <laughs> <laughs> was formula fed. His brothers were, it, I have no, I had no like allegiance to either side, but I was like, for me, I would really love to give this a go. And when that wasn't a possibility, I think it added to my depression and my anxiety because I felt like such a failure. I would just sit on the ground of her room at the, after a two week appointment and the pediatrician said, she's starving you have to supplement. This isn't your, your, it's not a failure on your part. It's just a reality. She needs this. And that was really hard. And I just cried and cried and cried. And my husband finally said, we have to give her this. It's not, I have to make an executive decision here. You're, you're not okay. She's not okay. And I have to step in. And that was the best thing he could have done. But I felt so much shame and I felt myself over explaining and over sharing to people. But I also found the questions that I received really odd. I specifically remember my father's friend, my 70 something year old man, asked me how nursing was going. I don't know why that is. I'm not offended by the question at all. Like he's a grandpa, he's a dad. It's it's not offensive to me that he asked. It was odd, but my response was odder because I then went into an over-explanation of how my body does not produce breast milk and I'm having to supplement. And I, I felt like this need at all times to over-explain and justify my decision. And I felt no shame and no judgment from a single person except one wife of a friend I have who is breast is best period. No questions asked. And she had the audacity to tell me I hadn't had the right lactation consultant. I'd been to like four or five at that point. I it just, I was doing it wrong and I was evil for giving my baby formula. And I was, that was really shocking to me, but thank God it was just the one person, but it was a really interesting time, like my body has failed me. And for someone that struggled with body image and eating issues to have your body give up on you was a really strange dichotomy. Did you say you went two weeks trying to breastfeed only? Yeah. At our two week checkup, he gave us um, sample formula to take home those little like yeah. Little two ounce things you put nipples on. And I, of course, was reading the thing and I'm like, what is in here? I can't give this to my child. It's obviously fine and healthy and a wonderful option. And <laughs> I just, I, I was so against it. And I don't know why you're, I just felt 
my body should be able to do this. And also it didn't help that Maggie, she didn't have a tongue tie or a lip tie or anything, but for some reason, her first latch, she literally bit off half my, half my nipple in the hospital and not a single lactation consultant that I saw even mentioned it. And since then I've seen things about, I cannot, I can't recall what the actual term is, but I think it's a, it's a rigorous eater or something to that effect. There are babies aggressive. Thank you. Was it you that told me? I think so. Okay. (laughs) That she just must've been an aggressive eater because half my nipple was gone and it never healed. Well, (laughs) it's like, I didn't, I don't know if I, how I missed that you breastfed for two weeks, but I breastfed for six weeks. Oh, I'm sorry. Exclusively breastfed. Oh yeah. Yeah. Exclusive for each of your two. Yeah. 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 So, cause in the hospital on day three, <laughs> the baby, like, you know, cluster feeding where they feed for like four hours mm-hmm. and I'm like, this shit is getting shut down at night. <laughs> I was like, where's the formula? <laughs> bring it on. Did they bring it to you? <laughs> oh yeah. They brought it to us and she stopped crying oh, all the time. See, imagine that. Just a full belly <laughs> makes them so happy. Well, and so it, it's funny you say the oversharing. So, um, oh my God, this is so terrible. So I I had a nipple, you know this, I had a nipple surgery when I was 20, a cosmetic nipple surgery where they cut the milk ducts. And, um, and you want to talk about like oversharing. So literally, what do you have? You have two nurses a day. We're in there five mm-hmm. days. So like 10 nurses. Uh, I had one lactation consultant. Um, and a partridge and a pear tree basically all know about, <laughs> I had to re-explain to every single person. Because oh, well, they wanted, I mean, like, they weren't being judgmental. They're just like, oh, let me help you. Like, every nurse thinks that, like, they know how to help you breastfeed. And I'm like, yep. And, and I actually didn't even think I'd be able to because I knew I had this surgery. So I wasn't like, I wouldn't, see, I think really it's like what mind frame. People are like, a lot of people will go into it and think they're going to exclusively breastfeed. And then there's, like, diff- various issues. but um. I kind of didn't think I'd be able to at all. So when I could do a little bit, that was fine with me. But then what ended up happening is once I realized I could do it a little bit, I wanted to like, I didn't realize how much I would like it and enjoy it. And, um, so I too saw like three lactation consultants and was like, doing everything in the bag, like the pump power hour, like feeding on one side, pumping on one side, getting up at night. I don't know, just like doing all the things you can do to eating those like cookies. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I bought like the most disgusting drops that you take in like a shot glass. It tastes like black licorice. Disgusting. And, uh, literally like from day six, when my milk came in to day, like 45, I was still making like a half an ounce on each breast after I would pump. (laughs) And the lactation people were really sweet. They're like, um, yeah. I mean, if you, if you feel like you want to keep doing it, that's fine. <laughs> but oh, they were I love like, that they said that though, but I had no idea that like you pump, like f- people pump like five ounces off of her breast. Some people pump like 15 ounces, like in a pumping session. And I had no idea. So like, I was like, I did a half an ounce. Like I did like three in one day I did like an ounce on one breast and I was like so excited. And they're like, yeah, that's great. <laughs> I didn't know. So anyway, sometimes ignorance is bliss. I know the second that I saw one of those mommy bloggers show her bottle and she'd overflowed the Medela five ounce. I was like, what? That can happen? (laughs) Like what? Oh my gosh. And I, so I also didn't realize there were different, it's not called a flange. Is it the the nipple size? Okay. The flange for the breast pump. So I had the Medela and then I also bought the Spectra because I was, the Medela wasn't working and I thought it was aggressive. Well, no, it was because my nipples are oddly small because I am built like a 12 year old boy. And I, they literally, there are not nipple flanges on the market small enough for my nipples. I bought the smallest from every possible outlet on the internet and not a single one even came close. So every time I was pumping, it was like my nipple like was being re-injured from her initial feast. So it <laughs> just and I don't understand why this wasn't told to me and also, I mean I guess I have to kind of blame myself because when I unpacked the pumps, like there were multiple sizes of phalanges, but I didn't think they made anything different than that. 
And right. I don't, I, I guess I, I don't know like where I was supposed to find that information. Maybe if I'd read the instructions, but why would I do that? No, no. I actually uh, think that the pump disfigured my nipples. Did you completely stop? Yes. I stopped pumping like two weeks ago. How do you feel? Much better. Mentally and physically? Mm-hmm. Do your um, boobs hurt, hurt? Wow. I can't speak. Do they hurt at all? after feeding no i mean i don't have there i just don't think there's much going on in there ever how do you feel about where you're at now i mean i feel like i'm poisoning her every time i give her a formula but i just (laughs) the reason is um it's just like when you look at the ingredients oh i don't like it um it's like a protein shake basically but um my doctor says that the specific one we use has literally been lab tested multiple times and they cannot find any hormones, anything bad in it. But um, I just still feel weird giving it to her. When she's standing at her high school graduation with all the other kids in her class, are you going to be able to pick out of the crowd which ones were breastfed and which ones were formula fed? No. No, but um, I just, I, I just, I think it's not, I don't think it's the formula. I mean, I say that, but I think it's just like the wishing it was like my own breast milk Mm -hmm. in a way. Cause it's just like, cause I try to eat, you know, healthy and all that. And so I want her to get that and you know, just can't. How are you processing that? I think, okay. I mean, it's just like going to be uncomfortable. I was telling my husband for like four months before she starts eating solid foods, like the next four months when she's about six months. She'll incorporate some other stuff. So she won't. Do they eat as much formula when they start eating solid foods? Uh, Maggie refused any solids till she was one. So I have no idea. Right. I see. Well, do you feel like your mental state has changed at all in the last two weeks since stopping pumping? Yeah. I mean, I definitely feel like number one, I've gotten like so much more time back to my life. Um, Cause I was, you know, feeding her hours a day and now it's way less and I just have more energy. And I feel like I'm finally like somewhat getting my body back, taking possession of my body again, because it's been like overtaken, um, which I said I had a good experience, but it's still like, wasn't my body. It felt like, I mean, it was yeah. like a host <laughs> for yeah, the baby. Definitely. Well, I mean, I think you're handling it quite well. We want to thank you guys for listening to this portion of the podcast. Please stay tuned because up next we have my good friend and colleague, Miriam Bustamante, who's going to talk to us about maternal mental health. Or you can use this one. Thank you guys for listening. We hope at the very least you could relate and at the very most, maybe you got something out of it even, Uh, but stay tuned because we have my very good friend and colleague, Miriam Bustamante, who's going to talk to us a little bit more about maternal mental health. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us. We're very excited. Today, we have Miriam Bustamante with us. She is a licensed clinical social worker who specializes in maternal mental health. She practices at a community mental health agency and has just recently started a private practice in Southern California. Welcome, Mimi. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. And I loved listening to your ladies' stories. So thank you. It's an honor to be here. I'm very excited. Awesome. We're really glad to have you. So we're just going to kind of jump in and we just want to know a little bit about how you kind of got into this field. Absolutely. So I guess you could kind of say I got into this field by accident. I mean, I knew I wanted to be a social worker and um, it was my last uh, internship of grad school. And at that point, I was very eager to get hired where I was interning, and they actually approached me and asked if I would be interested in uh, working there if, if I was willing to do maternal mental health, if that was something I was interested in. At the time, I didn't really know what that was. We didn't talk about it in grad school. Uh, so it wasn't something I previously had an interest in, but being eager to get hired, I said, absolutely, I'll do all the research, I'll find out. And um, it turned out that uh, that was very, I guess you could say, serendipitous for me because I love this work and uh, I didn't realize, honestly, how many women it affects. 
And so I guess you could say the stars kind of aligned for me to start doing this work. And now I really can't imagine not doing it, um, especially now being pregnant myself. Um, I can really see what a huge need there is for it. Yeah. And that's interesting. You were saying that they didn't mention it in school because when I was also in social work school, I don't think I ever remember them mentioning it either. So no. Yeah, it's an in- interesting to kind of think about. Um, and when you say it, I, I'm assuming, are you referring to like postpartum depression and anxiety and also like prenatal depression and anxiety or tell us a little bit more about kind of what you see in your practice? Oh, yes, absolutely. I guess it would help to clarify that, right? So I call it maternal mental health just because we know that it can start uh, – I mean, I would say it can start when you're trying to conceive, actually, before you're even pregnant, um, if you're struggling. Um, But definitely during pregnancy and postpartum. uh, And there is such a, I guess, huge spectrum of of things that women experience, including postpartum depression. Um, But postpartum anxiety, I would say, is also a lot more common than we talk about. And uh, I see that a lot, as well as... um, Postpartum OCD is also very common, and I don't hear that talked about as much either. Yeah, so that's what I'm referring to when I say um, it is like kind of like the full spectrum of maternal mental health. And then I think you were asking me about the risk factor or the signs that I see in my practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I guess you could say that that. Um, Some of the symptoms are pretty classic symptoms of depression and anxiety, but I would say the difference, um, some of the more surprising symptoms that maybe you wouldn't think about is, um, and Katie, I think you mentioned a lot of them in your story, but the difficulty bonding with the baby is something that I see, but I want to be really clear that I don't always see that. I think... I can say that every woman's experience is different and no two women that I've seen present exactly the same, but it is pretty common to have that difficulty bonding. Um, And I would say one thing we don't talk about a lot is like the postpartum rage. I think a lot of women experience rage, which isn't one of the, I guess we could say classic signs of depression, um, which is more like, you know, the lack of interest in doing things. I would say that one's different for, for new moms because they don't have time to do the things that they would want to do. So how do you really assess that, right? Um, because I think that's the difference too, is that a lot of moms, maybe they know what to do, but now they don't have time to do the things to take care of themselves. And so I think that is when they struggle, when they have... I would say one of the biggest risk factors I see is that they have a lack of support. And um, also I think having a traumatic birth experience is something that can be a huge risk factor for a lot of women. I think when that doesn't go as planned, um, it kind of sets them off to kind of struggle early on. And I see that um, they have a harder time adjusting to life as a new mom. Um, another, I would say, huge risk factor. But again, you talked about this, Michelle, that you have a history of depression and you did not get postpartum depression, but it is a risk factor. So a lot of women that I do see who have postpartum depression have a history of depression. And even more specifically, um, premenstrual dysphoric, dysphoric disorder, which is um, like more severe depression around your period. So it's like more intense version of PMS. That's a huge risk factor for um, postpartum depression as well. Um, And one common thing I would like to mention is the scary thoughts that I I hear a lot from moms. Um, And I think Katie mentioned that as well in her story that a lot of moms have really scary thoughts that they're afraid to talk about. Um, Even thoughts of like, harming the baby, for example. And so I just, I want women to know that that's very common and that usually those thoughts are because that's the last thing that you want to happen. And so your brain is basically trying to protect you from that. It's like, okay, well, how do we avoid this? But um, 
a lot of moms experience that and it can be very scary, but they're definitely not alone. That's super interesting. I have two questions. Do you notice like an average time it takes for women to bond if they do experience difficulty in bonding early on? I wouldn't say it's an average time. I think once they uh, start to feel better and once they get some relief in terms of like realizing that this isn't you, like it's not your fault. You have, you know, like an illness, just like diabetes or anything else um, that affects so many women because a lot of women don't know how common it is. So I think once they start to feel a little bit better, then uh, they start to be able to bond with the baby. And it's actually something that you can work on in therapy. Like I do that with women. Like sometimes you just have to go through the motions, you know, like just read the book or just, or especially like when they're pregnant too, like just talk to the baby anyways, you know? Um, And sometimes the action like uh, starts off the bonding. Like they take that contrary action, I guess we could call it, and they um, start to see the benefits. So yeah, I guess to answer your question, it really depends on the person. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, What are some symptoms of OCD and postpartum OCD? So those scary thoughts, like I mentioned, are a symptom of, yeah, so not always. (laughs) I think moms can have those scary thoughts. Uh, without um, necessarily meeting criteria for OCD. However, when those thoughts are, I guess what we would say, pervasive, like they don't go away and they're on repeat in your mind, um, that's a sign of OCD. And I think for a lot of women, it can start off as like um, wanting the house to be super clean, right? Or like just being afraid of any germ touching your baby, which I feel for women struggling with that right now with the pandemic, I think we might see a lot more um, postpartum OCD just because I think everyone's a little germophobic right now for a good reason. But I think there is that potential of it becoming pathological for a lot of women. Uh, So it can start that way, but then it becomes um, obsessive, which is like, you can't do anything but clean, right? Um, so an example would be like one woman was having those scary thoughts, right? And so she was so afraid of harming her baby that she would, um, like lock her door at night and like make sure her husband could only go check on the baby because she was so afraid she was going to do something to hurt the baby. When actually statistically speaking, women who have those scary thoughts don't end up acting on them. Something that I wonder about and think about is for people who are having thoughts of harming their baby. Mm -hmm. I would think that women wouldn't want to share that with somebody like a therapist or a doctor because they're afraid that maybe you're going to make a report to child protective services. So could you tell us a little bit about maybe what some, what would be reportable and if they did were reported, what that would look like and, and kind of um, differentiate that for us. Absolutely. And I think you bring up a really good point because I think a lot of women don't seek treatment, especially for that reason, because they think, oh, they're going to take my baby away from me. And I do think that at least my hope is that this is becoming more mainstream knowledge and that there's more awareness, I guess you could say. Like, for example, in California, where I live, for postpartum depression I think we're making progress but I do think in the past there was a lot of um, moms being reported because they were having symptoms of depression you know and I can really only speak for myself but I think in general a report gets made if the doctor or the therapist thinks that uh, you're unable to care for the baby um so for example, if you have if you have a plan to hurt yourself, that might be a reason that you get that you get uh, a report is made, basically. But let me be clear that if you're having thoughts about hurting yourself, that is a sign of depression. And it's different than a psychiatric emergency. 
their baby would be better off without them. Um, that's one that I hear as well. And that is not something that would get you reported in my practice. You know, if you have a plan to hurt yourself, then that might be something where I had to make a report just to make sure that you're okay and the baby's okay. So to get you as much support as you need. Um, and I would say beyond that, I think it's important to make a distinction between postpartum psychosis and postpartum depression. Because postpartum psychosis is a psychiatric emergency, but it's not, com it's not very common. It's like 1% of the population. And those are the women that you hear about in the news. You know, like um, I think of Andrea Yates, who, not to get graphic, but she did drown her five children. She did not have postpartum depression. She had postpartum psychosis, and it's very different. So obviously if we're seeing signs of postpartum psychosis. That might be something that, you know, I think a doctor should, really what we should do is get that mom admitted to the hospital because then she is having, like I said, a psychiatric emergency, but um, it's not common at all. Um, like I said, 1% of the population. The risk factor for that, I think one of the biggest one is like when you're not sleeping at all like less than three hours um, and yeah, severe history of mental illness, things like that. Um, so hopefully I answered your question. I know I kind of went on a tangent there. No, I think it's really important just to clarify, not only with um, the postpartum stuff, but just in general, just having a thought of wanting to hurt yourself or a thought of wanting to harm the baby doesn't mean that somebody's going to call child protective services and take your baby away and that it's actually beneficial to share those thoughts and get help for it is what you're absolutely. saying. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and if a report is made just to answer your question, you know, what they usually do is follow up to, um, and you know, a social worker would come out to your home and they would talk to you and they would see, you know, check on your baby and see how everything is going. So they don't just automatically take your children away. Um, the social worker follows up to um, investigate further what's really going on. Right. And I don't think a lot of people understand that they're really the, the, if you do get a report made and somebody comes to your house, they're really there to offer support and resources. And in order for somebody to take your family away from you or you away from your family, there has to be, um, a lot more than just one thought. Exactly. A lot more than, and even I would say a lot more than just depression, you know, cause, mm -hmm. um, you know, they're not looking to try and take your children away. Um, but I would also say, you know, that that experience can be traumatic. Just having a social worker come to your home can be scary. But most of the time that their goal is, you know, just to help you and offer support and not try to take your children away. Mm -hmm. So for all the things that we've talked about, the uh, OCD, postpartum depression, or just maternal mental health in general, what are some treatments that are available? So I think, uh, so I did do some training uh, when I got uh, hired, like I said, as an intern, and I did a training through Postpartum Support International, which is actually, I think, a phenomenal resource for um, anyone who thinks they might be struggling. Um, they also have like online support groups and just a ton of resources for um, maternal mental health. So... Basically in the training, uh, they focused a lot on cognitive behavioral therapy for new moms, um, which, I, which is a lot of like trying to help you work through those scary thoughts and like finding out like, okay, what's the evidence, you know, that you're gonna hurt your baby, for example. Like, have you ever been aggressive in the past? Or, um, or what's the evidence that you're a terrible mom? Like all you, all you do is take care of your baby, you know? Um, so a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy, interpersonal therapy, which is like um, all about like the client therapist relationship and really just trying to build that rapport and help the mom feel safe. Uh, so my approach, usually the first thing is uh, I want to help that mom feel better 
like right away. So I don't always go into like, tell me what happened in your family of origin, you know? Because like I said before, I think a lot of moms know what to do, but they can't do it anymore because mm -hmm. um, they have an infant to take care of. So a lot of it is trying to get them help and support, um, which I guess you could say is part of that interpersonal therapy. And, uh, and I think that um, support groups as well can be really helpful, a great form of treatment. Um, yeah, I hope that answers your question. And what about medication? So my thoughts on medication are that it's a very personal choice. And I loved the way you put it, Michelle, when you said there's risks and benefits to taking medication. And I think you have to outweigh them for yourself. But it can be helpful to do that with the help of a psychiatrist. And um, so I always recommend to women, because most women, that's the last thing they want to do. They're like, especially if they're pregnant or breastfeeding. So I just say, you're not committing to anything except for talking to this person who is trained and knows when to prescribe and when not to prescribe. And so I always tell them, you know, you don't have to take the medication, but I do recommend uh, that you get a consultation. And I think it's important to uh, talk about the fact that there is reproductive psychiatry. So there are psychiatrists who specialize in uh, women's mental health during pregnancy and postpartum. Uh, because I do feel like a lot of psychiatrists are afraid to treat pregnant women, or maybe hesitant is the word, to prescribe to pregnant women, and maybe for good reason, right? But if you can find a reproductive psychiatrist, I think that that is so important, just someone who understands all the risks and the benefits. Because uh, like you said earlier, Michelle, like a happy mom is a good mom, you know, and if you're okay, your baby's going to be okay. You're diagnosed with postpartum depression or postpartum anxiety, OCD, psychosis, whatever it is. That's not a lifelong diagnosis, is it? No. So is there a time, the typical time you reassess and change medication or whatever? Like how long does that last? That's a really good question. So you're asking basically like how long do I need to be on the medication maybe? Yeah. Or how long would I need to be in therapy for those mm -hmm. issues? So I think I can speak more to the therapy. Um, I think for the medication, it's kind of out of my scope to really say, I think, but I do think what I see is that people stay on it as long as they're comfortable. Um, but I do, I will say it's super important to talk to your psychiatrist about going off because you can have a, we would call it a relapse in depression if you just try to go off your medication by yourself. Um, but I think for therapy, I will say the hopeful thing to me, and I think the reason why I really love working with pregnant women or new moms is that they're just a little bit more motivated because like they have to feel better faster because uh, they have stuff to do, you know, like they have an infant to take care of. So uh, I do feel like within a month, a lot of times I, I can see the difference. Like I can see it in their affect, which is like even just their facial expression, you know, like they just look a little brighter. Um, so I would say within a few months, they start to feel better. But I do think that's something that also really varies uh, depending on the individual and especially how their mental health was before they got pregnant. Like if they were doing pretty good, before they got pregnant, I've noticed that within a few months, they do really well. And maybe they can stop coming to therapy if they choose. But I think if they were already struggling with some things before they got pregnant, then they might need more long-term treatment. Interesting. How often do you usually see patients? Weekly, twice a week? Weekly. You do? For an hour. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And earlier you were talking a little bit about uh, how important it is to have support. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about what a support person might look for in their partner? Absolutely. That's a great question. Um, and there's actually a really good book for dads called, I think it's called The Postpartum Dad. And it kind of 
teaches them how to be support supportive during um, the postpartum period. Um, it's by Karen Kleinman, and she's actually um, she wrote another book called "Good Moms Have Scary Thoughts," um, which is also a really good book for moms that are struggling with um, anxiety. So I would say what a what a person could look out for is. Um, I guess one of the signs is like, if the mom's not sleeping, even when the baby's sleeping, because of course we always assess like, how are you eating? How are you sleeping? Cause we know those things take a psychological toll on people. Um, but for a new mom, it's like, well, of course I'm not sleeping. Right. But it's like, okay, but when you can sleep, are you able to? And if they say no, then that is a risk factor. I guess another thing is, is if they, um, they just don't seem like themselves, like they're just not themselves, I would say is something that a partner or a support person could look out for. Like, this is just not the person I know. And the difficulty bonding with the baby as well, I think is another sign. And the, um, maybe the uh, over preoccupation with you know, keeping everything clean or not letting any germs touch the baby. Um, if that seems like it's a little bit more out of the ordinary concern. Yeah. And I'm just wondering as you're talking, I, and maybe I should have asked this earlier, but do mm -hmm. you see a connection between breastfeeding and any type of anxiety and depression? Absolutely. I think, uh, I don't know if I already mentioned that mom guilt is a risk factor, but, um, it absolutely is. And I, um, I almost think it should be like a separate diagnosis in the DSM like mom guilt because so many women have it and it's, it affects them so much. And breastfeeding can be like such a huge part of that, that moms, um, especially if they have this goal that no, I'm going to breastfeed no matter what. And then their bodies don't allow them to do that. Then they have a lot of mom guilt and um, it's a huge risk factor for depression because depression again is, um, can be that like feeling bad about yourself is a risk factor for depression and anxiety because Katie, you mentioned it, it can be very painful. Some women just like seeing the baby, like come toward their breast gives them so much anxiety because of how painful it is which it can almost become this like traumatic experience versus like what we think it's going to be right. Like our expectation that it's going to be this like blissful bonding time, you know, and it's not for all women. Uh, so what I say, because I also think you mentioned it, Katie, I think like our, I think we're similar age. I think you're younger than me, but our generation was like mostly formula fed and it was, I think more than norm. Now, I think in our culture, it's like breast is best, like you said. And even at the hospital, um, I hear the doctors like really trying to push it. And uh, my, my thing is like a, a fed baby is the best baby. Like a fed baby is a happy baby, you know, whether that's bottle fed or formula fed or breastfed. Like if your baby's fed, you're doing a good job. Yeah, I think that's so important. And yeah, now that, and thanks for sharing with us that yeah. you're pregnant. Um, yeah. And I'm just wondering on a personal level, do you feel any differently about your job or about what you do or all your knowledge now that you're pregnant? Do you like see things from a new perspective? Yes, I do. Absolutely. Uh, I think that one of the things that um, has come up for me is that before, like, kind of the example that I don't have to break my arm to know that it's painful right but if I have broken my arm and so have you I can relate on a different level and have I guess more empathy I wouldn't say I didn't have it before but I do think I have more empathy and I will say um something that is super common that I think we should talk about more is also perinatal loss so I had a loss early on and um so I think that has caused me more anxiety during this pregnancy. And I think it's something that I also see that's very common 
in my practice too, is women who have had previous losses. Um, they struggle a lot during their pregnancy with anxiety. And uh, so I can relate to that on a different level. And it's very hard not to go to like the worst place in your mind. Um, and so I definitely have a new level of empathy for that, absolutely. And I think, yeah, just in general, I think it just has built up my empathy and, and um, I can just relate on a different level. And honestly, it makes me grateful that I have this background in mental health, like in maternal mental health, and I had the education training beforehand because now I know what's out there. I know the resources. But I will say, even though, like, I know how common it is and I know um, the resources, it's still hard for me. So it gives me even more empathy to think about women who don't know, don't have the education or maybe the resources and they're struggling. It's like, I know all this stuff and it's still hard for me. Like even um, failing my glucose, my first glucose, glucose test, uh, I still had the guilt, even though I know better, right? Even though I know it's my placenta and, you know, even athletes get that. I still had that, oh, I wasn't eating healthy enough. That was like my automatic thought. Um, but luckily I know what to do with those thoughts. So that's the good news. Do you deal with patients or clients that have um, anxiety based on like mom shaming? Do they come to you with like, I feel so judged and the choices that I'm making everyone, whether it's I chose to formula feed or do they feel pressure from mom groups and mom shamers? Yes. Yeah. I think so. I think they definitely feel it from like mom shamers or even their doctors sometimes, to be honest. Uh, yeah, I think some doctors are more inclined to feel like breast is best, you know, and try to help them. But I, I honestly feel like it does mostly come from within them, though. Like they might get some of that from outside groups, but it's mostly they really wanted that i think and the fact that you know their body they weren't able to do it it didn't look the way they thought it would is the most difficult part that makes a lot of sense mm -hmm. great well that's those are all the questions we had from you is there, is there anything else that you wanted to add or anything else you want to say i would just say you know if you're struggling you're not alone and that there is help and there is treatment and the treatment does work. So you can get better. I would, I would say that's my message of hope that the treatment does work and you won't always feel that way. And uh, yeah. And just don't be afraid to ask for help. Great. Well, thank you, Miriam Bustamante. If you would like, if you reside in the state of California and would like to work with Miriam, you can find her on Psychology Today under Miriam Bustamante. Thank you. Thank you, ladies. It was awesome to be here. Okay. So one thing I'm absolutely loving this week is the Fisher Price Bouncer Chair. Best $29 somebody from my registry spent on me. I am loving this because she will sit in it and look at that little mobile for however long I put her in there. And it's really been a godsend for taking showers, cooking, and I can still keep an eye on her. So I would say not all babies love bouncers and chairs, but for $29, it's definitely worth a shot. So this week, something that I have done to help my quarantined mommy brain is I have returned to work as of yesterday. So I've been able to focus on something other than feeding the baby, bathing the baby, putting the baby to sleep, waking the baby up, changing her clothes, taking her picture, which is all really lovely. Um, but it's been really nice to uh, take that time to um, work with my coworkers, work with um, getting set up to see patients and getting back into the groove. So that has been my lifesaver this week. What about you? So my lifesaver this week is um, a step two playhouse that my dad got Maggie. It has been a complete 
life-changing experience for our whole family. It's one of those like plastic playhouses for outside and it has like flower boxes and a little kitchen inside and a doorbell, like it actually rings when you push the button. Um, so as the weather's been nicer up here in Washington, we um, have been able to spend a lot of time outside playing in that and she just adores it. And that's really helped me um, get us outside and away from the TV and just kind of out of our day-to-day quarantine schedule. It's been really nice. Um, and it's been really fun to see her imagination start. So that's been really fun. That concludes this week's episode of Ditch the Couch with Michelle and Katie. Please subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please give us five stars and leave a review. It would mean the world to us. We always have links or important information mentioned in each show added to the show notes. Follow us on Instagram at Ditch the Couch or email us at ditchthecouch at gmail.com. Talk to you next week.